Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Things that, uh, things that, words that we didn't know we knew until the last 18 months have, have come around. Um, for example, if prior to 2020 somebody had used the word super spreader, you would have likely thought about some sort of lawn tool, right? Like the army worms ate my grass and so I had to go rent a super spreader, right? Um, <laughs> prior to 2020, if somebody had told you you needed to flatten the curve, well, you would have been insulted, thinking that somebody was telling you need to lose a little weight, right? You need to flatten the curve a little bit. Prior to 2020, if, you, if somebody said that they were not an essential worker, you would have said, well, why do we have you on payroll if you're not an essential worker? We've all learned some, some new words, some new phrases. Um, and, and I don't know, if you're like me at all, um, this last year and a half, it's caused me to kind of evaluate situations differently. I mean, uh, for example, I had a doctor's appointment the other day, and I went into the doctor's office, and the waiting room was probably no bigger than this stage, a little tiny waiting room, and, and I'd never been there before, and literally the waiting room, it was standing room only. And so, now, keep in mind, I'm an introvert, and I've got a little bit of a dose of claustrophobia, you know, spread on top of that. And so if I walk into any kind of a space that's crowded, pulse starts to quicken. I get a little bit nervous about the situation. Like elevators, if you get a bunch of people on an elevator that I'm not related to, I'm, I'm prone to just get off. Like I'll wait on the next car. I mean, that's how, that's how it is. And so I got to the doctor's office. I checked in, and I looked around. Now, again, prior to last year, I would have still been uncomfortable in that situation, but this past week, I'll give you, I mean, I'll be honest, standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody in a doctor's waiting room, they're rocking the chin mask, right? I mean, the, the chin mask makes you feel better about life, you know, because uh, nobody's catching COVID off of a contagious chin. Um, but, but that gave me a little bit of anxiety, I, I won't lie. And so I, I decided I would go wait outside on the sidewalk and just, uh, just wait for them to, to come and find me. But as I was standing there kind of reflecting on, on this strange predicament to be standing on the sidewalk outside of a doctor's office because I wasn't comfortable inside the doctor's office, it got me thinking about all the different measures that we've put in place as a people to avoid catching a disease or avoid spreading the disease. And some are appropriate, some are not. I'll leave those opinions. You, you can have your own opinions about that whatever, that, whatever that looks like for you. But as I was thinking, when it comes to our faith, we ought to be doing the exact opposite, right? That, that we ought to be looking for ways to communicate our faith, ways to spread our faith, ways to, to make the gospel contagious. And so in a non-pandemic world, standing next to that guy in the doctor's office was a great opportunity to, have a, have a, to, to lead into a spiritual conversation. You know, hey, where do you go to church? You know, since we're standing here rubbing elbows, you know, let's, let's talk to one another. But in today's world, we think about things differently. When we think about these circumstances today, especially as it relates to our faith, we ought not be trying to keep it to ourselves. Instead, we need to be thinking of ways that we can spread it to others. When we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, we encounter what, what if we were talking about a pandemic, would be considered a super spreader event. 
However, the spread that takes place here in Acts chapter 8, we encounter this and we recognize that it is a good thing and it is something that should absolutely be encouraged. Last week we talked about Stephen. We met Stephen, we talked about his, his sermon, that powerful defense of the gospel that he gave there in front of the council. We talked about his role as a deacon, but sadly we didn't get to spend much time with Stephen because as soon as we met him, as soon as he was introduced to us, he was almost as quickly as that brought before the council and actually executed there. Most of the story that we have about Stephen is devoted to his defense of the gospel that he shares that led to that brutal public execution. But we pick up in chapter 8 and we get this response to Stephen's death. And this response is, can be described in a term that we've grown very familiar with here in the last 18 months. The response is in fact a, a super spreading event as the gospel is it breaks out of Jerusalem. We have a gospel outbreak on our hands in Acts chapter 8. And I would invite you to turn your attention there this morning in Acts chapter 8. If you're able, I'd love if you stand in reverence to the reading of God's word here in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of Philip and Stephen and these other men that were selected as deacons and for their, for their power in preaching the gospel and the effects that their lives had on others. We ask God that our lives might have the same sort of effect as we go through our world today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we look at these verses very important for us to remember what we talked about several weeks ago when we first began this journey through the book of Acts. The persecution of the church and the subsequent spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem, it did not catch God off guard. Think back to the key verse we talked about in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It is that geographic Great Commission where, where we are given the Great Commission in those concentric circles of expansion as the gospel leaves Jerusalem and goes 
ultimately to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, As you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we've been watching this through seven chapters, and what we've learned in this whole process is that there is a substantial church in Jerusalem. The church that has been birthed in Jerusalem is larger than all but our biggest megachurches today. Thousands and thousands of believers have, been, have, been, have found new life there in Jerusalem. They've been organized into these home groups. They share fellowship and worship and they break bread together. There's remarkable things that have happened over the course of time in this brief history of the church. In fact, I think we would agree that if the conversion rate that they experienced in those first few, few weeks and months of existence, if that had continued, there wouldn't be many lost people left in Jerusalem because you'd run out of lost people. Everybody would be saved. Everybody would be part of the church. And so we see this growing church in Jerusalem. It's interrupted, however, by persecution. And that persecution was supervised by the young man that we briefly met last week, this young man named Saul. And we read in the first three verses of chapter 8 that Saul's attacks on the church were absolutely brutal. You know, we've heard stories in recent weeks of the efforts by the Taliban to purge the Christian church from Afghanistan. We've heard stories of threatening letters that have been sent to known Christians, known church leaders and things like that from the Taliban saying, we, we know who you are, we know what you're doing. We, we've heard those stories. We know that there have been a lot of NGOs that have been trying to get these folks out of Afghanistan to get them out of harm's way. We've heard of door-to-door -door searches taking place in Afghanistan by the Taliban as they go around looking for Christians, looking for church leaders, looking for evidence of the Christian faith. We hear that, and we're rightfully troubled as we see that today, but it would appear that they learned their tactics from the church's first great missionary, the Apostle Paul, because that's exactly what Saul is doing here. We're told that he was going house to house, dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. This was Saul's work. This was Saul's task. It, it is harsh what Saul was doing. In fact, in verse 3, you find the word ravaging, that Saul was ravaging the church. The word to ravage in the ESV, which I'm preaching from today, it means to lay waste to something. So it's not that he's just going around and slapping them on the wrist. He's not just going around and telling them, y'all can't meet. He's not, he's not even doing like what the Chinese do today and saying, you can only meet in state-sanctioned churches. We're told that Saul is going around and he is laying waste to the church. Saul's goal when all this is over is that there would be no church in Jerusalem. The Old Testament equivalent of the word means to annihilate. Saul has very clear intentions that there will be no Christian witness in Jerusalem, no gospel presence there in Jerusalem. You think, well, maybe Luke's just writing this as an observer. You know, he's, he's just, you know, he's on our team, and so he's, he's painting the picture in a, in a little bit darker shade than, than what truth is. Well, let's see what Saul's own words are. And so Saul, later on in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, Saul becomes Paul. Listen to how he describes his activities. He said in verse 4 of Acts chapter 22, I persecuted this way, meaning I persecuted the church to the death, he says. 
So he wasn't just putting them in prison. Paul's own words of what he was doing is that he was seeing to it that Christians were murdered. He was there supervising the first murder of of a Christian named Stephen. Paul goes on in verse 4 of Acts chapter 22. He was binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He says over in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, he says, you've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, talking to the church there, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Saul's a bad guy. In this moment, in this time, Saul is, a, Saul is, is not just the murderer. He doesn't have blood on his hands. He's like the supervisor of the murderers. He's, he's the bad guy. Can I be so bold as to say he's the Osama bin Laden of church persecution in this day and in this time? That's who this man is. We understand this, and it's rightfully shocking to us, but we can't help but marvel at how God is absolutely able to take the worst parts of our lives and redeem them for his glory. you imagine We'll read about Saul in a little bit. You imagine the first Christian who has to go to Saul after he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. You want me to go? You want me to go meet Osama bin Laden? Trust me, he's a Christian now. Are you sure? Right? I mean, that's who this is. That's how how bad this guy is, but God is able to take this story and redeem it. And a majority of our New Testament is written by this man. That's how great God is and how God can take our lives and absolutely turn them upside down for his glory and for his good. And so as we're introduced to Saul here, we need to be encouraged. And listen to me, church, your life's mistakes cannot define you. Your life's mistakes cannot define you. It is only your creator who defines you. And your creator can take your worst mistakes and turn them into something for his good and for his glory if you are willing to surrender to Christ. And those mistakes, those mistakes simply become trophies of God's grace that you can point to and say, that's who I was, but that's not who I am anymore. Uh, Paul, I was a persecutor of of the church. I was a murderer of Christians. I was seeking to destroy the church. And now my life has been given to building it. It's not a trophy of anything I'm proud of, but it certainly is a trophy of God's grace. And so that persecution that Saul supervises, it leads us into the life of, of another one of those deacons that was selected back in Acts chapter 6. So if Stephen takes the role of an apologist, making those, those irrefutable arguments to the, to the people of the day, then Philip is an evangelist. Philip is one of the many that was scattered by Saul, and he ends up in the land that nobody loves, Samaria. Now, here it's helpful for you to think of that part of town that you don't want to go to. Here it's helpful to think of, of that area where you say, you know, I'll just, I'll just drive around that area because that's what Samaria was because that's what the Jews would do. Instead of going through Samaria, they would go around Samaria because Samaria is just that part of town that you don't go to. 
And so it's helpful for us to put ourselves in that place. Imagine what it would be like for you if you got dropped into the heart of that part of the town or that part of the country that you just don't feel all that comfortable in. That's exactly where Philip finds himself today. And we're reminded here that the gospel spreading in Samaria is a powerful reminder that no one, no one, no one is beyond the reach of a holy God. Nobody's beyond his reach. Again, you've heard Samaritans were not the most popular people in the Bible. And Jesus goes after the Samaritans, right? He, he doesn't leave them alone. Jesus incorporates the Samaritans into his ministry. You've heard the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That was a scurrilous story that the Good Samaritan was the hero. The Good Samaritan can't be the hero of the story. In Jesus' world, he can. Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 8 was scandalous. Jesus shouldn't interact with this woman. He should avoid this woman. But Jesus wins this woman's heart. In Luke 17, you find the story of Jesus healing the the ten lepers. And only one of those lepers was grateful enough to come back and give thanks to Jesus. And it just so happens, he's a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. That was insulting to Jesus' listeners. And so you have this hatred of the Samaritans by the Jews, and that hatred is not insignificant. Jewish rabbis actively taught that eating bread with Samaritans was like eating the flesh of a swine. And that was a bad deal. You know, we look and say, I like bacon. I'm glad to eat the flesh of a swine. Not in Jesus' day. Not in Jesus' day. Rabbis would, would pray Uh, Imagine this prayer, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. I mean, that would be like us saying, Lord, put the Methodists in the back of the line. I mean, that's that's what they're praying here. Lord, you leave them here. Don't Don't let them be resurrected. But here's the thing. God isn't swayed by any of our racist opinions, regardless of what direction they're aimed. Ultimately, all of this in the Gospels dealing with the Samaritans is preparing us for what God's ultimate plan would be. Samaritans were not disqualified from the kingdom of God on the basis of their ethnicity. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They were included in God's plan of redemption. And that's still true today. We need to hear this today. Our, our pulpits need to be proclaiming this today. You can have strong negative opinions about race and ethnicity, but I can assure you that God loves people from every single nation, every single tribe, and every single tongue. And your opinions about how you feel about this tribe or that tribe or this nation or this tongue doesn't phase the love of God at all. We need to hear that today. And so Philip, he ends up in Samaria. And I love the fact that we don't see Philip unnerved by his surroundings. Like, if you got dropped off in that part of town, what are you doing? Rolling the windows up in the car? Praying I don't get stopped at the red light? Trying to get out of there before the sun goes down? right? I mean, this is how we feel. This is how we operate. This is how we think. 
because we're conditioned in that regard. Philip ends up in Samaria. He's not worried about it. He's not unnerved. He's not like Jonah. Jonah still went to where he was supposed to go, but he wasn't happy about it, was he? Jonah got there, and, and Jonah wanted those folks to go to hell. He didn't love them. He didn't want God to save them. They were, they were Assyrians, and they deserved God's strictest judgment. But God said, you know what? I want to show grace. And so Jonah gets there, and he preaches. And he doesn't even get through with his sermon before people start getting saved. And then Jonah is mad about it. So he goes, and he sits, and he looks over the city, and he's just hoping that God will smite them. And God doesn't. Philip's not even like that. Where Philip goes, Philip preaches. Doesn't matter what part of town, doesn't matter what nation, doesn't matter what country, where Philip goes, Philip preaches, he shares Christ. And it just so happens that the good news that Philip had to share, it's exactly what people needed to hear. It draws a crowd. People will gather for things they want to hear, right? They'll gather when, when we give them something that, that affects their life. So don't miss what's taking place here. Philip is breaking brand new ground. He is preaching Christ as a Jew in a land that was not friendly to Jews. So this is brand new ground. No one's done this before. And so Christ is, he is preaching Christ here. Up until now, the church's work has only been taking place among Jews on generally friendly soil. The church, we're told, had favor with the people, even though the church didn't have favor necessarily with the leaders. But now, through Philip, the gospel's being preached to a people who were a little less open to those messengers. And so Philip is faithfully doing his job, bearing witness to Christ, and we see the other side of the story. He's not preaching to deaf ears. He's preaching to people who are interested in what he has to say because it's very clear that the Holy Spirit is, is very much moving. The Holy Spirit is driving this effort. Persecution may have prompted the need for him to get out of Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit is the one moving the story along because this was the story we've been told from the beginning. That God's plan was that the gospel was going to break out of Jerusalem, it was going to go through Judea, get into Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so as we work through the book of Acts, we can see that that plan is being fulfilled, that plan is being satisfied. God is, is moving the gospel out, it is being scattered. And it just so happens that here it's being scattered because of persecution that broke loose in Jerusalem. Well, how do we know the Holy Spirit's moving? Because Philip ain't healing anybody. Philip's not exercising demons. Philip's not doing those things. Philip is experiencing those things being done, but those things are being done not by Philip because of his great power. Those things are happening because the Holy Spirit is working in Philip's life. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says in verse 8 of chapter 8, there was much joy in the city. The gospel's being preached. Lives are being changed. The church ought to be an agent of joy in its community. I had a good friend in seminary. He was pastoring a Spanish-speaking church plant. We were in Birmingham, and so there were a lot of 
I remember where we lived in Birmingham that, that when you got to the red light at the end of our road, there were every morning there were, there were 15 to 20 uh, Latino men standing there at the bus stop, standing at the red light. And it was a place where contractors could come by and just pick up day laborers. And you would see guys in, in trucks. They were picking these guys up. And, you know, they had a, a big roofing job. And so they'd pick these guys up, let them go work on the roof, pay them in cash. And so you had this whole sort of underground economy that was there. And I remember my friend, he was, he was pastoring this Spanish-speaking church plan, and so he was dealing with a lot of these guys. And let's be honest, not all of them had their card, their green cards. Not all of them were legal. Not all of them were, were where they were supposed to be. A lot of them crossed the border at some point in time and did so in a way that would cause them legal problems. I had the privilege of, of, of being on my friend's ordination council from his church. Invited me to come and sit in part of that ordination council. And there were questions, appropriately, about his doctrine, making sure that he believed sound doctrine. There were questions that related to our statement of faith as Southern Baptists, the Baptist faith and message. There were questions that were related to his theology. There were questions that were related to how he understood the church. But one of the things that took me back in that, in that moment is that a majority of the questions did not deal with his theological and doctrinal convictions. A majority of the questions were issues related specifically to illegal immigration. And here's a man that we're ordaining to pastor a Hispanic church plant, and a majority of the questions were driven not by doctrine and theology, but how do you handle this illegal immigration issue? What's your opinion about this political situation? The same question was asked several times in different ways by different men, and each way, each time my friend answered the question the same way. And the answer for him was real simple. The answer was this. We do not help them break the law, but we do not stop them from meeting Jesus. We do not help them break the law, but we do not hinder them from meeting Jesus. In other words, he didn't allow highly charged political opinions about immigration problems to interfere with the simple mandate of sharing the gospel. Because the fact of the matter is, is that fella that was in his church who crossed the border illegally, he still needs to hear about Jesus as much as the guy that was in his church who had his green card and was there where he was supposed to be. And ideally, my friend said, when we help them meet Jesus, they realize the criminal trouble that they're in and they seek to rectify the criminal problems that they're in. Because that's what Jesus does. That's how Jesus works. Because what the gospel does is the gospel always challenges our biases and prejudices if they're directed towards people for things like this. God's not concerned about the ethnicity of people who are saved. In fact, God so loves the world that he anticipates the day, and we've seen the day that there'll be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue circled around the throne, worshiping our Creator forever and ever. Amen. Because the thing about it is, is the gospel, the gospel levels the playing field. You see, Philip's preaching was a breath of fresh air, for these Samaritans. 
Because the gospel Philip preached resonated with them because the gospel Philip preached did not show preferences to anyone. Because Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, the gospel declares very clearly, unequivocally, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who has risen above that standard. Every single one of us comes up short. If we are banking on heaven on our own efforts, we will fail. And that's true from the person who stands in the pulpit, the person locked up in solitary in prison. Every single one of us comes up short. The very first question in the New City Catechism is this. It says, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer is this. We are not our own, but we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's true for everybody. Every single one of us. Because the gospel levels the playing field. It doesn't favor men over women. It doesn't favor black over white. It doesn't favor rich over poor. It doesn't favor American over, over, over you know, Asian. It doesn't favor. The gospel declares that we all are sinners and come up short. Every single one of us. What's interesting in Acts chapter 8 is that Philip's preaching is well received. People are saved. There's revival, we would say, breaking out there in Samaria. But Philip's preaching even caught the attention of one of the local snake oil salesmen. If you don't know what that reference is, back in the, back in the Old West, there were hucksters who would travel around offering to sell a, uh, a magic potion, a remedy to some sort of ailment, and they were called snake oil salesmen. We meet Simon. Simon was Harry Potter before Harry Potter was cool. And Simon's tricks made him very famous. He was able to do things that, that people were intrigued by. I remember going on a mission trip to Jamaica one time, and I've got a suitcase full of these little illusions, these little quote-unquote magic tricks. And I remember setting up under a pavilion at one of these uh, at a festival that we were, we were kind of doing some evangelism in, and I opened up my little, my little suitcase of tricks, and I started to do some of these little gospel magic tricks. And some of those folks were, it's all sleight of hand. I mean, it's not magic. It's just sleight of hand. And some of those folks were watching. They were blown away at some of the little sleight of hand things that, that I was doing that day. Simon is someone who has some power, and he is famous. He is, people know who he is. He had very powerful displays of, of power. In fact, his displays were so prominent that he even had developed a, a following that claimed that he was divine. They believed him to be some sort of a, some sort of a god. At least until Philip came along. Philip came along with a better story to tell. Philip came along and revealed that all of Simon's tricks were nothing but carnival routines. Philip's gospel looked even at Simon. This man who had dubbed himself Simon Magus, Simon the Great, and said that, you're not great. You're not powerful. You're not mighty. You're Simon, not the great. Simon, the sinner. And Simon, you need nothing more than a Savior. 
we read this text, and at first glance, it looks like you found one, right? Like Simon, we're told Simon even believed. Simon believed. Simon, Simon prayed the prayer. Simon got baptized. Simon did all the things. Simon found a Savior. Subsequent verses cast some doubt on the credibility of his conversion. We need to understand that the gospel today still keeps the playing field level. No one is beyond the power of the gospel. No one is beyond salvation. But it keeps everything level. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what their sin is. They're still sinners in need of a Savior. And I know that it feels like that today in our country that the enemies of the gospel are literally everywhere. You may have a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor or a family member who is making decisions that fly in the face of that which you know to be true. And you're tempted to think they're too far gone. They're too far gone. But it could be that what they need today more than anything in this world is not your internal debate about the condition of their soul, but just a simple gospel conversation with you. In Samaria, this outbreak is well underway. The gospel truth broke the chains of race and discrimination. This, this Jewish man, this Jewish Christian deacon, preaching the gospel to a group of people that, that were unclean, that he wasn't supposed to be there with anyway. The mighty power of Simon the Great, his power had even been broken to the point that he felt it necessary to proclaim faith in Jesus. This is a big deal. Word got back to Jerusalem. We keep reading in chapter 8, and we find that there's a very high-profile visit. Peter and John come along. We keep reading, and we find that Peter and John show up there in Samaria, and they ask the question, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? Well, no, we haven't received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John pray. As they pray, they lay hands, they receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to these people of Samaria. And what we recognize here is that the Holy Spirit can never be bought but he is so generously given. Look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 8. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, remember we think he might have got saved a little while ago, Simon saw the Spirit was, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That's that snake oil salesman there, right? You can almost see it playing out. I'll pay you to give me this power, and then I can go to these people who need it, and I'll get them to pay me to give them the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is, this is how it's going to go. I can't help but read this and, and notice something. Simon could see that the Holy Spirit was given... But it appears that he himself did not receive it. Instead, he asked if he could purchase a gift that wasn't actually for sale. Now, there's a couple of ways to think about that. The first thing I think is, man, what a jerk. What a terrible person. And it's very clear from the story that Simon's a bad guy. He is not somebody that we are holding up as our, as our ideal representation of the Christian faith here. And when confronted about it, he doesn't repent. Peter challenges him. He says, you know what, you need to repent. And Simon doesn't say, you're right, I was wrong, this was stupid of me to even suggest. Instead, all Simon's able to say is, is I hear you pray that nothing what you just said happens to me. 
He's not able to repent. He just says, I hope that I'm not cursed like you tell me I'm going to be. It's actually believed from historical sources outside the Bible that Simon is not a Christian. In fact, it's believed that he goes on to become a significant enemy to the Christian church. In one work published in the year 180, the writer Irenaeus said that Simon founded a heresy that would challenge the church for an entire generation. So Simon not only walks away from this situation, not a Christian, he walks away as an enemy to the Christian faith. Simon's a bad guy. But secondly, the thing we need to understand that what he seeks to purchase, it is a gift that is never for sale. God freely grants himself through the Holy Spirit to all who believe. Consider that. That's a big deal for us today. If you're in Christ today, God has freely made himself available to you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, what lives inside of you is the presence of the Almighty through the Holy Spirit. You see, Simon heard. He heard the message. He was impressed by what he saw. He believed that there was the power of self-promotion in this new religion. If I just follow Christianity, then I'll be like Philip and all these people will listen to me like they're listening to him and I'll have this gift, this trick that I can do that will make people be filled with the Holy Spirit. It'll make me great because that's what he thought he was, Simon the Great. And so in spite of hearing the message, in spite of seeing what God could do, he never found Jesus never found Jesus. I wonder how many of us have loved ones in that same boat. They've heard the story. They've heard the good news. They've seen God working in your life and the life of their loved ones. They never found Jesus. That same Holy Spirit that filled those Samaritans that filled Philip, the evangelist, and Stephen, the apologist, the same Holy Spirit that the apostles received on the day of Pentecost, it is granted to all who believe. That same Spirit that granted Philip such favor with the Samaritans is ready to move and work in us today. Think in your mind right now. The Holy Spirit lives in me. Say it to yourself. Holy Spirit lives in me. The same Spirit lives in me that lived in Philip and Stephen and the apostles. It's the same one. He lives in me. And in the same way that he used Philip and Stephen and the apostles and so many who came after them, the same way that he wanted to use them to change the world. He wants to use you. And he wants to use you. And he wants to use you. And he wants to use you to change the world today. It's on our shoulders. No one else is going to do it. There is no NGO. There is no nonprofit. 
there is nobody else except for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that can change the world in which we're in today. So students, if you look at your school and you think, man, my school's a tough place to be. It's full of people who don't believe. It's full of people who do things that I know aren't right. I really wish it would change. It may very well be that God is looking at you and saying, be the agent of that change. Be the Philip who goes to your school and says, this is what the gospel says. This is what the Bible says about about who we are. We're all in the same boat. See, our problem is that we like to get high and mighty at this point. I'm saved and you're not. We like to get to this place of saying that that I'm I'm somehow spiritually superior to the other people. But the fact of the matter is, is the gospel declares the same problem for all of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. The only catch is some of us have found him. So God wants to use you. You look at your workplace and you say, Pastor, you don't know where I work. I hear things on a daily basis that, that I know I can't repeat in church. I just wish it would change. We get a new boss, it would change. We get a new, a new supervisor, it'll change. And it may very well be that God's looking at you and saying, no, you're the one that needs to be the cha- agent of change. You're the one who needs to take that coworker aside who's taught you more four-letter words than you thought you could learn and say, let me... Let me introduce you to my Savior, who is Christ. God wants to use you, just like he used these men that we've been reading about here. To pray me, please. God, I'm grateful for your word, for your faithfulness to us, and for your call upon our lives. God, I thank you that the same Holy Spirit that empowered Philip to preach to the Samaritans, to stand toe-to-toe with one of, the, one of the bad guys in the Bible, he fills us today. The same Holy Spirit that gave Stephen the words to speak when that council was ready to kill him, he fills us today. The same Holy Spirit that gave the apostles joy that they'd been counted worthy to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus. He fills us today. The same spirit that showed up that day in the upper room at Pentecost, he fills us today. And while we are prone to look at our circumstances and our situation today, and we are prone to be forlorn, we're prone to be discouraged, Some days we're prone to just want to give up. We are filled with the same Holy Spirit. And so, God, I would ask that the work you did through men like Philip, that we would see that work duplicated in our schools and in our factories and in our offices and in our neighborhoods and at our family reunions and in our football teams and in our band practices 
that, God, you would move in our hearts in such a way. Just like Philip, he showed up in a town that he wasn't welcome in, but he showed up preaching. Bearing witness to the good news of Jesus. God, would we do likewise? In wisdom, in circumspection, in faithfulness to your word and your call. God, I would pray that today, if there's any in this room who maybe like Simon their whole life, they've heard, they've heard, and they've seen what you can do, but somehow or another they've missed Jesus. That today they would look at their life and you would show them deep inside their heart how far away they are from you. And that today in this moment, they would give their life to Christ. God, would you grant them the courage to, to have that conversation today? Lord, we love you. We thank you for the witness of these great men who were rather ordinary, who were only set apart by the move of the Spirit in their lives. May they be examples for us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.